Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 27. If you have been with us recently at CTK at all recently, you know that we are turning the corner this morning into 2 Samuel after what has been a several-month-long study of 1 Samuel. Though, as I said early on, what we call 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one text. So it's actually not a corner we turn at all. We just turn the page and keep going. But because we are keeping going, even as it feels like we're at some kind of transition moment, I did want to take only a minute to thank you and to encourage you to press ahead. First of all, thank you for your willingness to study through Samuel. Because I know it's not easy to focus week by week when for months we move through a lengthy section of the scriptures that's perhaps not as familiar as other parts. And I'm not skipping chapters, so I'm not preaching the highlight reel version of Samuel. So the narratives are long and the historical complexity is all there, but you've been doing it. And I want to just encourage you to stay with it because 2 Samuel is an extraordinary book. There are, of course, the great many memorable passages that we could list if we wanted to. And true that much of the time in 2 Samuel, we will be talking about David, even this morning. But while that's true, I did want to say, at least at the outset of 2 Samuel briefly, that 2 Samuel isn't actually about David. It's no surprise, but I would submit for your thinking that 2 Samuel ultimately, of course, is about God. All the Bible is about God, but I'll say it for 2 Samuel the way one commentator puts it. 2 Samuel is about a covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through whom he will preserve his covenant people. At the end of the day, that's what's going on in this book. So, though I'll just drop that out there for now. We will try to keep that kind of big picture in view as we tackle this book now week by week in the coming months. Well, we begin then in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 1. And there you read, if you have your Bible available, so you can follow with me, as I hope you will. There you read, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Now, I won't now go and review all the context from the end of 1 Samuel that would be relevant here, but if you were here last week or you've read it ever or recently, you know that 1 Samuel chapter 31 was the narration of Saul's death. And Saul at that point was in the far north fighting the Philistines while David was in the far south fighting Amalekites. 
And if you were here last week, you know I suggested that the events of 1 Samuel 31 were to be understood as happening roughly at the same time as the events of 1 Samuel 30. All of which is to say that David could not have known Saul was dead. He'd been sent from the battle in 1 Samuel 29, you remember? So David knew that conflict with Saul was coming, but he couldn't know the outcome. Which means 2 Samuel chapter 1, please hear this, is all about David hearing of the defeat of Israel and the death of Saul and of Jonathan and responding to it. And there are two responses that we see in this chapter, and I'd like for those two responses just to form the structure of the sermon very simply. Though, take a while to explain it. The first response is that David executes the Amalekite who claims to have killed Saul. That's his first response. And then secondly, David laments. David laments over Saul and Jonathan. And I've wrestled this week a lot with what to draw out from this chapter for you. I think that in both of the responses of David, at this critical juncture in the narrative of Samuel, we're meant to see something important about the character of God's king. And then I think as we see those important things about the character of God's king, we're going to find ourselves as Christians, well, ultimately then thinking about Jesus, the king. So that's the course I'd like to try to sail on this morning. But I'll tell you now, and based on my experience in the first service, what's going to happen is that I'll develop that first point pretty much in full. But the second one, I think I'll only be able to sketch briefly at the end. <laughs> because maybe it should have really been two sermons on this chapter. But we're locked into the schedule for now. So we'll do what we can with it. Two responses in this chapter that David has to the news of Saul's death. And the first one is that David executes the Amalekite who comes to him claiming he killed Saul. And I think it's safe to say that that was not the response the Amalekite man was expecting. So let's read the text, and I'll just insert a few comments as we go. Two days we already read David is back in Ziklag. Then verse 2, on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp, the narrator tells us, with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And you probably recognize that that's the traditional way to signal grief or mourning. So David can tell from the appearance of this man that something's up. And when he came to David, verse 2 continues, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Which is interesting, right? Because what does that tell you in this context? Just that this man was acknowledging what we already know that David is now the king. 
Now, of course, there had been many in the story of 1 Samuel who had recognized that David would succeed Saul as Israel's king, but we're going to soon see in 2 Samuel how it will be some time before all in Israel acknowledge that fact. But on that day in Ziklag, the man who came to David seemed to understand. And so we start to get this man's story in verses 3 through 10 of our chapter. And as David now asks three questions, verse three, David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. Which is probably the right moment to pause. And I'm going to ask you to try to do something. And I want, I, I want you to try, because you have to try, to sit with David in that moment. Because the biggest challenge that I had in reading and trying to think through and now trying to preach 2 Samuel chapter 1 is identifying with David here. Really getting what's going on in David's head and David's heart here. Because we, or at least I, if not you, have this tendency to just read the Bible sort of right through, right? these narratives and we're looking for the theological payoff and we're looking for the biblical connections or whatever it is that we're looking for. And we already know a lot as readers from the end of 1 Samuel. Now we have to try to sit with David here in order to go with David in the rest of this chapter, which means we have to keep in view that David doesn't know what we know. This is David's first hearing of this momentous news that Saul is indeed dead. It would be hard to imagine anything more significant than this for David. Right? And for those of you who've been with us through 1 Samuel, in fact, the narrator's done something subtle but I think intentional here to try to draw out just how significant a moment this is. I don't know if anything about this little scene felt familiar to you, but there are echoes in this passage of a much earlier occasion in Samuel, all the way back to 1 Samuel 4, if you can even begin to remember back that far. When in 1 Samuel 4, a man of Benjamin ran to Eli in Shiloh with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. First Samuel 4 verse 12 says, just like our man here. And in first Samuel 4, he ran to Eli straight from another battle between the Israelites and the Philistines bringing the terrible news that the Israelites had been crushed and Eli's sons had been killed and the Ark of the Covenant had been captured. And do you remember 
Eli's question to the man? It's there in verse 16 of 1 Samuel 4. Eli asked, how did it go, my son? It's precisely the question David now asks in 2 Samuel 1. How did it go? And the answer, as we hear that narrative resonance, is that it was the end of an era of leadership in Israel. The news unfolds for David in the same way it did for Eli, one piece of information at a time, moving toward what will be the climactic news for David. The people fled. Many are dead. Saul is dead. Even Jonathan is dead. Now, I realize that David has known Saul's day is coming. He said that. Remember, not as far back in 1 Samuel, in chapter 26, verse 10, David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, Saul, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. But now it had happened. And so the central question of first, the first chapter of 2 Samuel becomes, how will David respond? What do we learn about God's king? I mean, is it not true that it is in our response to momentous circumstances or news in our lives that we can catch a glimpse sometimes of what's really going on in our hearts. And that news could be good, that news could be bad. It's our response to that news that can be the window into what we value, what we desire, what our priorities actually are. This is the moment for David. And we'll see his response in a minute, but first, verse 5 of our text. In verse 5 of our text, we get this initial clue that something isn't square about this man from Saul's camp. Or at least David seems to detect something's off. We don't know why, but David feels the need to press for more details in verse 5. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Now, it's helpful, I think, at this juncture to know, to see that sometime later, if you want to look at it, just in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, a little bit, uh, sometime later, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, when David recalls this moment in 2 Samuel 1, he says this, As the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Did you hear that? Evidently, David could tell this man thought he was bringing good news to David. 
which very significantly is not how David understands it. Right? So David presses for more information and the man's story is laid out. All sort of abbreviated in narrative form. You can follow along. By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, he says. And there was Saul leaning on his spear and the chariots were closing in. And he looked and saw me and called and I answered, here I am. And he said, who are you? I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, kill me for my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. And I, I read it in an exaggerated way with that tone because David later says he thought he was bringing good news. You see? What's going on? Here was a man hoping, I think, to benefit from the favor of the new king. And brothers and sisters, the point of 1 Samuel 1, 2 Samuel chapter 1 is, God's king isn't like that. This Amalekite thought he could gain some benefit from his lie and his claimed act of violence because he figured, well, David's a king, his ways are like my ways. that David would be taken in by his strategy, that David would actually rejoice in the death of Saul and his most likely successor, Jonathan, you see? And then maybe David would even reward the Amalekite as a bearer of good tidings, as in fact the facilitator of his own ascent to the throne. And of course he's wrong about all of it. Thanks be to God, he's wrong about all of it. Rather than rejoice, David would lament. And rather than reward the man, David would have him executed. Now, I say the man was lying because I think we know he was lying based on what the narrator told us about the death of Saul in 1 Samuel 31, right? From last week. The accounts don't line up. And they can't be made to line up. There's parts that are close. But they're not the same. And I think we're meant to understand, and there's a lot of other commentators and scholars who say the same thing. I think we're meant to understand that the narrator's own report in 1 Samuel 31 is the authentic version. There's been a lot of ink spilled over all this, but I think it's clear enough what's going on. I mean, the man's story itself has some potential credibility issues, like how do you by chance happen to be on Mount Gilboa? And was Saul really there, as in your telling of this? Was Saul really there without having an armor bearer or any other soldier by his side so that he had to turn to an Amalekite who accidentally came by and Saul asked him to inflict the fatal wound? I mean, 
Can you imagine David at this point, what he knows so far? There's another piece of information coming, but what he knows so far about this man is this is an Amalekite, right? Remember, David has just finished striking down the Amalekites after they had destroyed Ziklag and dragged off all the women and children. Now, there is one more piece of information that's coming in a second that's important here. But what I think is this, that for reasons we're not told, we may be able to piece it together in a second. This man must indeed, I think, have been on Mount Gilboa probably even close to Saul, perhaps even witnessed Saul's suicide and the death of his armor bearer. The story's close enough. But then, before the Philistines come to strip the bodies the next day, this man steals the crown, steals the armlet from the body of Saul, and he's concocted the story that he now tells David. And why is he doing it? Evidently because he expected to gain some favor with David for being the one who had removed David's enemy, quote unquote, and opened the way for David to take Saul's crown. And it isn't entirely clear whether David knew for sure the man was lying or not. Though I think there are reasons to think that his story would have seemed suspect to David. We get David's response, though, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to come back to verses 11 and 12. But jump to 13. He had two more questions. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Now, the, the ESV translation masks this, but the question that David asks there is different than the question that David asked in verse 3, even though the translation is identical. David's asking here about the man's identity, not the physical place where he just came from, which was the first question that he asked. This is a question about identity. And the man says significantly that he's the son of a sojourner. Now, that's a technical term. That's a non-Israelite who lived more or less permanently in Israel. Think resident alien, right? Which, if true, and it's up for debate whether even this is true, who knows? If that's true, then that means it's possible this man could have actually been serving in Saul's army which could then explain his being on Mount Gilboa and a few other pieces that begin to fall into place there. But whatever the case may be, true or not, at the least he claims to be the son of a sojourner to make clear to David that though he's an Amalekite, he wasn't an enemy. He had a status in the Israelite community. Credibility, perhaps. But then that claim leads to David's final question in verse 14. Because if it's true, this man is the son of a sojourner, then presumably he's aware of the law. He's aware of the customs of Israel. He's subject to its penalties. So David's last question is, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? 
And now you feel the weight of the question given what the man's just claimed. Because we've seen before how David understood that no one should dare to act against the Lord's anointed, right? In 1 Samuel, when David himself refuses to lay the hand on Saul in the cave, that's his reasoning. And we saw, or at least we read, how that view is not just David's. That view is shared by, for example, Saul's armor bearer, who was asked in 1 Samuel 31 by Saul to kill him, and the armor bearer wouldn't do it. Why? The text says, for he feared greatly. Hear that? He feared. That's David's question. How is it you were not afraid? That was right. The armor bearer's response, because only God himself may both appoint and remove his king. To put it simply, to oppose the Lord's anointed is to oppose the Lord. David knows that. So this man who came to David, who I'm arguing hadn't in fact killed Saul, but claimed that he had was thinking that that would be a way to gain the favor of the new king. And then you see David's response in verse 15. And it is a righteous response. He didn't even need the man's answer to the final question. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Note the language there. David only states that the man said he killed the Lord's anointed, not that he actually did. Which I think is the subtle narrative clue that David saw through the man's lies. Though scholars debate that. Either way, what's the point? Dear friends, the character of the Lord's King is the point. The Lord's King doesn't reward evil. The point is that this is what David aspires to be as King. And we are so longing for this after these long narratives of Saul. The writer of Samuel later characterizes David in, in chapter 8, verse 15 of 2 Samuel. He says, the narrator says, David was administering justice and equity to all his people. Consider other texts like Psalm 101, a psalm of David, as David himself describes his aspirations as king. To reign in a righteous manner, to defend the cause of the faithful, to remove the wicked from the land. Take, for example, just verse 7 of Psalm 101. Psalm 101, verse 7. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. There was a vision for a just society that David describes, and it's one in which the godly are given opportunity to flourish. While the arrogant and deceitful are held accountable for their sins. Now, I know, and of course it's true, that David would never fully realize all of that during his reign. 
Though, if you've read First and Second Kings lately, you would know that David does become the standard by which later kings are measured. This is good news, friends. But where is all of this going? The Amalekite man dreamed he could seek a benefit from the king, seek David's kingdom without pursuing his righteousness. So where I'm going, friends, is I want to ask you as I ask myself, do we do that with Jesus? Is this not the point at which we need to examine whether in any area of our life we actually think there may be benefits to be gained by wrongdoing? Look at Jesus Christ, descended from David according to the flesh, has now been declared by God to be his powerful king, Romans tells us, by his resurrection from the dead. So yes, I'm going from this text way beyond David now to ask, do we see God's king as he really is? Jesus Christ, the righteous John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. This is everywhere in the scriptures. As you know, his is a kingdom of righteousness. He will judge the world in righteousness. If we take God's kingdom seriously, we must take righteousness seriously. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the king. To seek first the kingdom of God will mean to seek his righteousness. That means we repudiate, brothers and sisters, we repudiate the temptation to find satisfaction or fulfillment or achievement or security or status or happiness through wrongdoing. Or we misunderstand our king. Does that make sense? Now, Jesus is a king who forgives those who repent. Jesus is a king who restores those who turn to him. But don't come to Jesus imagining that he'll somehow reward unrighteousness. David executes the Amalekite. Brothers and sisters, in the end, when, as Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Revelation 21, verse 8 tells us who will be excluded from the new heaven and new earth. And actually, let me not soften it by saying just excluded. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire, it says. It will be the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Revelation 21, verse 8. This is God's king. That's David's first response. 
It's a response you long for after 31 long chapters of 1 Samuel. And I told you I'd be out of time, and I am out of time. And I just did one. So let me just sketch for you, because I can't not say anything about it, but let me just sketch for you the essence of what I think then is going on in David's second response. What's happening in his response of lament that David has? There's two places where you see that in this chapter, isn't there? Briefly, we had it in, in verses 11 and 12. I skipped them a minute ago. It's there in verses 11 and 12, where it surprises us, I think, because we don't expect it in the middle of the interaction with the Amalekite. But there, David's grief erupts in verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And there's a lot that we could say about that response. Let me just say, starting with this, there was no sham in David's grief that day. Don't read it that cynically. I hope I actually don't need to say that, but I, I do feel I need to say it because I tell you, it, I think it's a sign of some corner even of the wickedness of my own heart that I had the hardest time this week coming to terms with the fact that David's grief over Saul was genuine. You get what I'm saying? I mean, Jonathan, I get. But Saul... <sighs> And I realized that, in fact, my assumptions were the same as the Amalekites. How could David not rejoice at the end of his arch enemy, Saul? You hear that? But no. David may well have understood, he did understand that Saul's death was God's doing. We'll end on that point in a minute. But that did not diminish the tragedy. And you know what it reminded me of yesterday when I thought of this? It reminded me of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem because he could see the divine judgment that he knows is coming to them. This is the heart of God, brothers and sisters. And are we so cynical that we lose sight of it? We too easily lose sight of it, I think. Here's Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 31 and 32. Boy, if you've never heard this text, it'd be worth memorizing. Ezekiel 18, verses 31 and 32. The Lord speaking, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. And make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And here's David. David never sought Saul's death, even as Saul over and over sought to eliminate David. And that same impulse is carrying on now for David even after Saul died. You see, you heard read, beautifully read, that formal lament that David composed in verses 19 to 27. I can't even begin 
I can't even begin. The more I studied that poem this week, the more I was in awe of its richness and its complexity and its beauty. You may not so easily, and I, I just don't think that's as obvious. It, won't, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be as obvious in the English translation as in the Hebrew. Of course it couldn't be. It's an astonishing poem. We'd need a full lecture just on that, I imagine, to allow the poetic power of the verse to come out. I'm not a good enough preacher to do that in a sermon. But if you read the literature around this lament and the, the superlatives abound, scholars call it a pearl of Hebrew poetry, one of the most beautiful heroic laments of all time, one of the most hauntingly beautiful songs of its type anywhere in the literature of the world. I mean, I can't even begin. So instead, I'll just close with a few reflections. Is it not amazing that David's response to the death of Saul and Jonathan, of course, and I wish we had time to talk about Jonathan here and how David moves to Jonathan at the end of this and the significance of that. But for now, just go with, is it not amazing that David's response to the death of Saul is to compose a lament that he wants to be taught to the people of Judah, verse 18 says. In fact, the narrator then adds in that verse, look at verse 18, behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Oh, that we had that. I looked for it on Amazon, but it wasn't available. <laughs> Joshua 10 verse 13 is another verse in the Bible that mentions the book of Jashar, almost in passing, Joshua 10, 13. Evidently, this was a well-known anthology of Israelite poems. Thankfully, the author of Samuel records David's lament. And here we are on a bitterly cold, snowy January morning, 3,000 years later, reading it. The poem is gracious. It highlights the triumphs. It remembers the days of Saul's popularity, of Saul's prosperity, of the, of the good things that happened under Saul's reign. Which means that once again, even though Saul had waged a long-standing vendetta against him, David would not deliberately destroy him. which I think is beautiful. It's, it wouldn't be hard, right, in some ways. Saul's dead, after all. Just a few well-chosen well lines in there to destroy his reputation. David will have none of that. Which, I don't know, it makes me think of Jesus praying for those who crucified him reconciling his children to the Father even when they were his enemies, exhorting his followers to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. None of which is to say, as I close, that David was disingenuous. I don't mean that. The mighty, after all, have fallen, David says. There can be little doubt in the context of Samuel who is responsible for that. 
You heard Josiah read it at the start of our service. The poem now that's at the beginning of 2 Samuel perhaps reminds us of the poetic prayer that we looked at many months ago near the beginning of 1 Samuel. Where it's Hannah who made explicit in that poem what can be read, I think, between the lines of David's lament. <coughs> that it's the Lord who brings down the mighty. The bows of the mighty are broken, Hannah said. Now there's only one who is Yahweh's anointed. Clearly, at the outset of 2 Samuel, the future lies with David. But it's a future that has hope only if the people and the incoming king learn the lessons of the past. Aren't we heartened by what we see in 2 Samuel 1? He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, Hannah had prayed. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.